So welcome back to One Piece Mom. We are on episode four. I am so excited. I'm still getting a lot of love and a lot of support. Um, I do have a Facebook page for everyone out there looking. One Piss Mom on Facebook. Feel free to join. Feel free to start a conversation on the page. If you're a part, if you know someone who would love to be a part of the conversation, feel free to add them. Um, I'm having a great time. I'm getting a ton of support. It is absolutely amazing. So thank you very much. Remember, if you have any ideas that you think you may want to hear, any stories that you think you may want to hear, you may want to talk about, or even subjects, feel free to throw it out there. I'm totally into it. This ep- this podcast is about things that piss us off as moms. Uh, for me, it's just the abuse and the, the murder of children, children being mistreated. Maybe for you, it's something different. So send it to me. We can discuss it. Episode four is about George Stinney Jr. That name may not ring a bell to you, but I'm sure you've seen his picture circulating on Facebook. I had to grab a glass of wine, a stress ball, and lock myself in a very quiet room. This picture was of a young boy, 14 years old, he was 14, being electrocuted. You saw him crying and the look on his face was of sheer panic and just fear, horror. Um, So we'll get into it. The story is probably going to piss you off just as much as it pissed me off. Uh, We're going to get into it. I'm going to take a quick break. We'll hear a word from the sponsor for this week, and we'll jump right into it. So we have George Stinney Jr. Uh, This young man was born on October 10th in 1929. He was born and raised in Alcula, South Carolina. I'm hoping I pronounced that right. Alcula was built for lumber and mills, so it was a very successful lumber town. So you were able to move there and get a job, and they even provided housing for their workers to move their families in, and that's where the Stinney family lived, in the company housing. Um, Alcula was also highlighted during the Civil Rights Movement. It was the city that was a site for Briggs versus Elliott trial, which was one of the five Um, cases that went to the Supreme Court. Um, They were kind of combined to create Brown versus Board of Education. Um, This was, of course, challenging the segregation in public schools. So this just kind of gives you an idea of how segregated Alcula was. They also, there was railroad tracks that separated the white versus, you know, the black. So blacks didn't cross over never crossed over to the white side and and the whites you know very rarely came over to the black side um and so we'll skip to 1944 and we'll give you a little bit of history about his family so at in 1944 um george stinney jr was 14 years old um he was living with his father george his mother amy he had two brothers so the oldest brother was johnny he was 17 and then George, and then Charles, who was 12, and then they had a sister, Catherine, who was 10, and Amy at the time was seven. So they had a pretty large family. Um, Amy 
can remember I, I listened to a tape of Amy speaking and she can remember being George's shadow she loved her big brother and she followed him around and she said he entertained her he played with her and he enjoyed being around his sister so they called her his shadow so on the day in March in 1944 Amy and George were outside of their home playing George's mother and his older siblings were at one of the local stores um so we had two white girls june binker age 11 and marianne thames age seven um, they crossed over to the black side of the tracks so george and his sister were outside playing and two little white girls ride up it's something that you don't forget because it's just out it's just awkward and they act they were looking for a certain type of flower and so they asked them do you know where this flower is? You know where we can find this kind of flower. They were looking to pick flowers. George and his sister let them know that they didn't know. The girls kind of went on their way. George and his sister continued to play. She also has said that her and George played throughout the time until they realized that the girls were missing. So George was always within Amy's sight. Um, they never came home. These two little girls went missing and they never came home. George Sr., so they, they put out a, a search. And so George Sr., he helped in the search. So we had blacks and whites helping to look for these two little girls. Um, 11 and 7, that has got to be terrifying to know that your child, your two little girls didn't come home. So that had to be terrifying. So every it was all hands on deck. Everybody helped to look for these little girls. Um, the next day, Marianne and June were found in a local pond. They were face down. They had been beaten and had horrible trauma to their heads. Um, the gentleman who found them, he did say that there was no blood around the scene. And looking at how badly beaten they were, it seemed like there would be blood all over, but there wasn't. And it kind of made him feel like it was possible that this wasn't where this, you know, this crime occurred. And they were just dumped here, um, which doesn't surprise me. And I hate to, I hate to sound like that, but I mean, in this day and age, in 1944, I can absolutely imagine somebody doing something to those little girls and placing them on the black side of the railroad tracks to make it seem like the blacks had done it. And actually that's exactly what happened. They placed these little girls on the black side and now we're looking for a black, a black person who committed this crime never even considering that you know they could have just been brought here um so within 24 hours of them finding the girls they came and arrested george and his brother johnny now soon after they arrested george and johnny johnny was released but the police held and held george and he would ultimately never leave that police station um, once in custody, George, without a lawyer or any parents present, they said he apparently confessed. Uh, there was no, uh, there was no taped um, confession and there was no written confession that George gave. Um, there was only, uh, something that was written up by one of the police officers. It wasn't signed by George. None of that. Now, when George was later interviewed by his lawyer, he told them, um, he was starved and they bribed him with food and said, Hey, if you say this, then you will 
you'll get out of this, but we need you to, we need you to say this. So he was bribed and he was starved and he was 14. So his mind, I mean, how does he know at 14 that they're going to convict him and, and ultimately murder him? Um, he was not allowed to see his purse, his parents during any of this time. So George was in custody for 81 days during this time. He was not allowed to see or speak to his parents during any of this time. So 81 days, they had to move him to a county that was about 50 miles uh, away. It was in Columbia. And they said it was for his safety because they said people were threatening to uh, lynch him. So they had to move him away. Well, 50 miles away and you have this hardworking black family, they can't get to Columbia to see their son. They can't make it there. So (laughs) they were never able to see George, which is... It's shocking to me, even, I guess it's not shocking to me. I mean, if you can run in someone's house and just take their child and kill them and and be found innocent, and I'm talking um, and openly say that you did it, then why, I guess would it surprise me that you can take my child and put him in jail and never let me see him or never let a lawyer really get to him. Now, he was was given a court-appointed lawyer, but he did a trashy job. Um... Ultimately, George Sr. lost his job and the family lost their housing. So they had to move away and move in with family. So this just turned into a nightmare for the entire family. And little George was innocent. So it was it was terrible for him. Um, the trial, including, so they, they moved to the trial. He gets a court-appointed lawyer. The trial, including, so they started the trial including jury selection this is crazy to me it lasted only one day so everything so they 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 submitted everybody's testimony they brought what little evidence they had they uh, George's lawyer only called three witnesses and he never challenged any of the police officers that were that came on to say you know George confessed but all I have is me my, you know, my letter saying that he confessed and his lawyer never challenged it. Um, so all, this all lasted one day, all white sp- spectators, no blacks were allowed in the courtroom. The jury was made up of all white men. And during this time, most juries were made up of whites because blacks were not allowed to register to vote. And so they couldn't be picked for jury. Um, and of course that wasn't by choice, you know, they were threatened and they were killed if they tried to come to register to vote. So ultimately when we got in trouble, we couldn't have a jury of our peers. We had to have mainly white men. And so we know how that's going to work out. You know that they're def- they're going to find you guilty immediately. Um, so his court appointed lawyer was Jane Charles, I'm sorry, Plowden. Um, he was a tax commissioner, which I don't know. You tell me, maybe that's the, he had no, he had no idea what he was doing. He was a tax commissioner. Like I said, he never challenged the three police officers and the confessions. And there was, there was no evidence against George. The only evidence they had was this confession that was written up by this police officer. And actually, two different confessions were presented, presented, and neither one of those were challenged. Neither. 
the first confession, one of the officers said that George told him that one of the girls slipped in the pond. He went in to help her get out and they started to fight him. So he ultimately beat them. And then the second confession that was given, that they say was given, where George said he followed them and just beat them. And he tried to rape them and didn't work. And he was able to come back and try again, but ultimately he killed them. His his lawyer never, never challenged any of the evidence, any of this evidence that clearly made no sense. Um, there was no evidence linking him to the crime, to the rape that was allowed to be discussed. Now, the, the, um, I'm sorry, the, I'm trying to think of what he's called again. The medical examiner said that there was no rape, but they still openly discussed and, 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 and made it seem like rape happened. And, and the medical examiner said, no, there was no rape. Um, the presentation of this, of his trial, of his side of the trial, only lasted two and a half hours. The jury only took 10 minutes. And you gotta be, I don't know, I, I guess I can't wrap my, my mind around taking 10 minutes to decide the life, the ultimate, like, end of a 14-year-old's life. You only took two minutes. It, I, I bet you it took them, I mean, 10 minutes, excuse me. I bet you it only took them to two minutes, though. To go in there and to, they, they probably laughed and said, hell yeah, he's guilty. Even if he's not guilty, he's guilty. Um, so Judge Philip Stowe sentenced George to death by electrocution. A 14-year-old. He sentenced him to death. Now, the NAACP and um, local reverends and churches, they, you know, they fought and they, they tried to get some justice for George. They tried to get, you know, the governor to offer him a stay and to, you know, stop this. And the governor was just as racist as everybody else. He didn't want to hear it. So on June 16th, 1944, at 7.30 p.m., George was electrocuted. I mean, think about that. He only, so during these 80, I think it was a total of maybe 83 days that he was in custody. He saw his parents once. He wasn't able to let them know how he felt. He wasn't able to, he had no one to console him. No one. Um, He was asked if he had anything to say. And his response was a very, you know, soft, no, sir. When he was walking into uh, the room to get strapped to the chair, he was carrying a Bible. They ultimately had to use that Bible as a booster chair, as a booster seat for him because he wasn't big enough to actually sit in the seat. They strapped his legs and his arms to the chair. They put a mask over his face. The mask didn't even fit. He was tiny. He was a little boy. Uh, Once the electrocution started, the mask slipped and his face was revealed uh, full of tears. He was, I mean, terrified. I don't, that's probably not the right word for his, um, for what he felt. Uh, it's hard to think about that. They say when the mask, that when the helmet and the mask slipped off, you could see, and this is 
horrible, but you can see like his his fried, you know, head. And he didn't even fit in the chair. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Columbia, South Carolina. His parents couldn't even have his body back. An unmarked grave. How did this, I mean, how did this affect his, you know, the rest of his family, his siblings, his parents for the rest of their lives? There's, you can't really fight it. Like, you know, there's nothing that you can really do to, to truly, truly fight it. You just kind of have to take it and, you know, be quiet about it. I just can't imagine, you know, my child being taken away from me. And I can't see, you know, in what world will they not let you see him at all? And then, you know, 83 days later, he's dead. And and not, uh, you know, he wasn't given, how do they do it? They used to do it with the shot where they gave them a shot and they just kind of slowly put them to sleep. You electrocuted a 14-year-old. Special place in hell for you. Special place. So in 2014, a local historian named George Fryson, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, he started to look at the case. And he found evidence that he felt like would exonerate George. Now, this won't do much, you know, because George is gone and I can't imagine his family feeling like they won or... You know, anything like that. But I guess just to have the justice system say, you know, we were wrong. <sighs> Man, if that's if that's enough. If that's enough. Um, George felt like we can find evidence that can prove that there was not enough evidence to convict and kill this young child. They also found someone who made a confession on his deathbed. And... After he made this confession, his own family came forward to say, hey, you know, my dad made this confession and we truly believe him. We think that he is the one who did this. Um, This person of interest came from a family that served on the coroner's inquest jury. So these families were given the coroner, you know, a little push saying that we recommend that George be prosecuted. Like we recommend that. So pass that along. How corrupt can you be? I mean, besides just being racist, you've this person is a child murderer. So you much rather just you much rather have an innocent person be convicted and killed than to get an actual child murderer off the streets. Because the person who did it is still walking free. He's still out there. So he's able to continue to do to do this over and over again. So you much rather put a black person in jail than to get down to the bottom of what really happened. You gotta have some serious, serious hate. You know, that's a serious deep down hate where you don't even care about the truth. Just your your color, your skin, that puts you beneath me. So yeah, you can pay for it. Meanwhile, this guy who actually did it he gets to walk free. And probably, I'm sure he terrorized, you know, kids or little girls throughout all his years. You don't just kill two little girls and then stop. Especially in that day and age when you completely got away got away with it. You completely walk free. Nobody would have ever known if he didn't 
confess on his deathbed. Um, so in 2014, new evidence came out. And it was an affidavit saying that he was with his siblings the entire time. So he had a sister that was in the house. He was outside playing with Amy. And they remember him being there the entire time. There was no time that he was not with someone. And like I said, the, the man who found the little girl said there was no blood in this area. So it means that the, you know, the girls weren't killed there. Also, George's cellmate said he never confessed. And he, he, he cried and, and talked about how innocent he was every single night. He never confessed to him. He never said, you know, oh my goodness, I did this horrible thing. No, he cried and said how innocent he was. And he said that George told him, you know, I'm innocent. Like, how can they kill me for something I didn't do? I just don't understand. How could they kill me for something I didn't do? Which, as a little kid, it's hard to wrap your mind around it. It's like, I did not do it. How, how, not only am I being accused of it, but now I'm being murdered for it. So on December 17th, 2014, instead of granting a new trial, Judge Carmen Mullen just vacated George's conviction. Uh, she said he had not received a fair trial. Um, he didn't have effective counsel. She said the confession was more than likely coerced, and it was admissible. She said the 14-year-old received cruel and unusual punishment. And to me, that's an understatement. That's a huge understatement. Cruel and unusual punishment. Yeah, that's to say the least. Uh, the judge said there's no way to justify a 14-year-old being tried, convicted, and executed in about 80 days. I mean, you have some of the worst murderers out here. And some of them are still alive, sitting on the deathbed. They made sure they killed this young black boy without without a fair... Yeah, I don't understand. Like, I, okay, you're racist. We get it. You, you think all people, black people are bad. But if you bring this black boy in here and nothing makes sense, aren't you so pissed off that these two little girls are dead from being... And, and, traumatically they were killed traumatically aren't you just upset about that enough to want to find like out who really did it or is it just so important to you to be racist I keep coming back to that because I I just don't understand it I just don't understand it if someone were you know to be murdered in in my someone that I love I want to find out who actually did it because they're you know there it's possible that they could be out there doing it to someone else but just because I don't like you, I want to accuse you. Well, that doesn't help what happened to, you know, my loved one. Of course, the family of the girl say they're disappointed in the judge ruling. And I'm not even going to get into that because show me the evidence. Show me the evidence as to him doing it. And he was 14. He was 14 years old. It's just such a sad story. And how do you... How do you explain that to a 14-year-old? Like, yeah, I know you didn't do it. I know this is wrong. I know you haven't seen your parents. But now I'm taking you to your death. And no, you're not even big enough to fit in the chair. Give me that Bible that you're carrying and you've been reading and just sit on it. Now, it's, it's not worth anything. It's just a booster, it's a booster seat for you. It's not worth anything. It's horrible. It's horrible. 
And there was a priest that came in there and the priest was the one who asked him if he had any last words. And he told him, no, sir. He said, well, you don't want to talk about what you did to these little girls? And George just looked and shook his head. No, sir. How dare you as a priest? You feel comfortable with you saying, give me that Bible that you're carrying here because you're a praying young man and just sit on it so that we can properly electrocute you. I guess everybody was racist and I have to remember that everybody was at this time. It just makes me so angry. It makes me so angry. It does. I don't know. Crazy. It is the craziest story I've ever heard. And you see that picture of him and I'll post it on the face in the Facebook page if for those of you who have never seen it. And I just I keep staring at it. I stare long and hard at it because you can see the fear, the hurt, and the betrayal in his eyes. Like he just felt so, you can see it, it's clear. And it makes me, you know, get choked up every time I see it. You could tell that he, he felt like, man, why is this happening to me? Why? So out of all that, the lesson that I learned and the lesson that I felt like could be learned. And it was hard to pull one of these. I mean, these stories that I'm coming up with, it's hard to pull lessons from them because when you're just a person doing right, you know, what, how, how do you, you know, what lesson can you learn from it when people are just being wrong to you? You just, be, you've been wrong. And so what lesson can you learn? And I think I set my, me and my husband, we sat my 14 year old down and we talked to him about, the importance of being upfront and honest with us. You know, at 14, thank God in this day and age, we're still able to help you through your mistakes, but this is your learning time, you know, but after a certain time, you're not able to make those mistakes. It could be the end of your life, you know? So it's important that you stop and think with everything that you do and this is not in any way connected. I'm not saying that Georgia did anything that he could stop and think. But all I can think about when telling my 14-year-old this story is this is, you know, how this is the lesson from this is that one mistake from you, one mistake from you can be it. So remember that, you know, you be who we raised you to be. You be that gentleman. You be that boy that we raised you to be. And if you get into something, there's nothing too big for you to there's nothing too big for you to bring to us at this age we want we need to hear it all so that we can help you through those mistakes because once you get you know of age your mistakes are your own and there's nothing that we can do to fix them so that was my lesson from it is just to I don't know teach your kids to to make sure they're, they're they feel comfortable enough to come to you and, and understand that shit sometimes the mistake that you don't make in your life some mistakes that you don't make could get you into a world of trouble. So make sure that when you do make mistakes, you're upfront and honest with me and you you lead your life with integrity and you, you be honest and you just be a good person when no one's looking. And so that's what we're teaching my kids is, you know, nothing is too big to bring to us, but be a good person when nobody's looking because you could be doing absolutely nothing and get acute. It's a scary place. It's a scary thought. <laughs> It's scary. It's scary. That's all I could think of was just sitting my my 14-year-old down like, listen, I mean, this, this, this young man didn't do anything. 
and he ended up dying from it. So you have to remember to walk walk the right way and you know get your education and do what you have to do so you're not in this position. It's scary. It's because we're in a position where we don't know what to tell our kids because when they do right they get in trouble and when they do wrong they get in huge trouble. But when they do right they still get in trouble. When they do right they still they're looked at as someone scary. They can't laugh and have fun and play their music because they're they become a threat. So what do you tell your kids, you know? I'm I'm trying to let go a little bit of my 14-year-old because I'm like you can go where, you know, you can go and have fun. I took him to the park recently. And I just parked in the back of the park and watched him and his friends. They played a little flag football and I just watched him because I didn't want to not be there and somebody looked over and saw a group of black boys and felt threatened. So I'm like petrified. So anywhere he goes, I'm kind of like stalking behind him because I feel like I have to be there to protect him 24 hours a day. Think about that as a parent. Like you don't feel safe with your kid going anywhere. And that is scary. That is scary. Um, So this was episode four, George Stinney Jr. I'll post the pictures of this uh, young man in the Facebook group. Remember to join if you haven't yet. And the Facebook page and the Facebook group are two different things. The Facebook page is just where you'll see status updates from me. The Facebook group is where we have discussions. So feel free to join um, and feel free to comment. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. One piss smile. Bye-bye.